podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. If you're liking this podcast, then perhaps you'll like our other show, Double Century. It's my podcast on the history of cricket, where I take you through the stories that made our game. Season one included 11 topics like the evolution of batting, reverse swing, and that first crazy test. But season two is dedicated to one topic, race in cricket. For that, we look at the incredible story of Basil Dolavira, but also cricket's historically strange relationship with race. We look at what happened to Basil Dolavira and also delve into cricket's historically strange relationship with race. You can find Double Century in all your podcasty streams. Welcome to Red Inca. This episode, we're talking about Maeve Glanning, who, for me, is the best batter I've seen in women's cricket. And I don't say that lightly, as I stand Mathali Raj to this day. But outside of Lanning's batting, she is also a very guarded person. And then all of a sudden, she just sort of jumped up and gave a big, long personal interview to someone. So uh, I convinced them to come on the show. I am Onesha Ghosh. I am a multimedia journalist with ESPN Cricket Info, working mainly as a sub-editor, but I do a lot of reporting uh, and writing on the side as well. Lanning is in her prime, bats like no one I've ever seen, can seemingly hit a ball through point with seven, eight fielders there. But she's also a fascinating cricketer and where she fits in for Australian cricket and the women's game. She's a Ricky Ponting acolyte and a daughter of the professional game in Australia. And she's someone who wants to be great. And she's someone who is already great. I'm going to start with my Meg Lanning story. So in 2017, I was covering the Women's World Cup. And I really wanted to write about Meg Lanning because I felt like there hadn't been enough written about her. And she was already quite clearly one of the best, if not the best in the world. So Cricket Australia usually don't give me interviews because, you know, I don't have the greatest relationship. And I begged them and begged them. And they said, no, of course you can do Meg Lanning. And I had to drive up from London and I can't remember where she was, but it was Derby or Leicester or wherever one of those random places that the Women's World Cup was. And I put in the sat-nav the wrong hotel. And I drove into the center of town, realized I was wrong, and then had to go back out. They were staying in the middle of nowhere, the Australian team. A lovely hotel, but like in a car park, essentially. It meant I got there about 15 minutes late. Now, I've been late for a few interviews in cricket in my time. I don't think anyone has ever been more upset than Meg Lanning was when I got there. She is an intense character. She is not the sort of person you want to turn up late to. So then I've already started bad. She's also, I think it would be fair to say, she doesn't give you a lot as an interview subject. I actually use her in my sports writing course to talk about how sometimes you have to take the smallest thread and write around it because the person doesn't give you anything. And I use Meg Lanning as an example. So she was angry. She didn't want to talk to me. And it was 20 minutes of basically her just sort of grunting back at me. She's an intense woman, is she not? Certainly. (laughs) <laughs> that is the larger perception around the Meg Lanning uh, cricketer. The persona of Meg Lanning is built around, I believe. And that has been so for the longest time. She is intense as we know her, as we've seen her be on the field of play for nearly a decade now. She's about to complete her 10th year in international cricket in December. Although there won't be any international cricket until I think early next year for Australia, thanks to the COVID-19 pandemic. But yes, uh, Meg Lanning, first thing that comes to your mind is uh, the resolute, determined figure who exudes confidence, clarity of thought in her body language, 
And that has, for the longest time, reflected in her performances as well. Not just her the personal records she's achieved, but what she's done for the team. She's led a world-class team that has just completed a world record equaling 21 ODI wins on the trot. And who better than a certain Ricky Ponting to level with? Well, the Ricky Ponting stuff's interesting. So I, I read your piece, obviously, but I went back and read my piece on Make Planning as well. And I was trying to think about when I came up with the Ricky Ponting thing that I asked her about, whether she had already mentioned it before I wrote about it and I did that, or whether it was just watching her. Because quite clearly by watching her, you can't always tell with all cricketers who their heroes are or who they've grown up watching. But with her, it was quite clear that Ricky Ponting, if he wasn't her hero, then it was someone that she had thought that's the way a professional goes about their cricket. But it is quite interesting how honest she's been that, that Ponting is her hero. Absolutely. And it, it wasn't the first time, as you rightly mentioned, your piece was also basis to my research for uh, the interview that I did for the Cricket Monthly a while back. And she's gone on record and mentioned in various other interviews that Ponting was her hero growing up and the one batter she modeled her game after, though not too consciously, was Ricky Ponting. What she mentioned in the TCM, the Cricket Monthly interview, was the fact that in Ponting, what she admired most probably was that he did not want to waste time. If there was a ball waiting to be hit, he hit that from the get-go. There was no getting one's eye in, as it is uh, typically with most batters. If there was a half tracker, as she said, it's got to be hit. And that's what Ponting did during his uh, uh, peak days. And that's what Meg Lanning does. And probably it's a major component of her success and efficacy and the dominance uh, that she's built in international cricket uh, and the WBBL as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, I could get why she thinks that way. But for me, from a visual point of view, what I've noticed is that Ponting was kind of the first limited overs professional cricketer in that, you know, Dean Jones had a little bit of that, but Ricky Ponting sort of took it to another level. And Ricky Ponting had something that Dean Jones didn't have. I mean, he had a sort of Michael Jordan-esque competitive fire in him. So you put incredible talent. That's where I see Meg Lanning more in Ponting. I can see occasionally that need to attack, but it's really the need to dominate and win and then do everything that you have to do off the field to prepare yourself. I mean, she came into women's cricket when professional well, really before there was a professional nature, but she always felt like a professional from a very young age and the way that she prepared and thought about the game in a way that other women would have loved to have been able to do, but it didn't exist for them as much. And she sort of created that environment around herself, whether it be diet, whether it be mindset, whether it be physicality, all those things. She was a professional cricketer, wasn't she? Certainly, and that's what separates achievers, legends from ordinary mortals, I believe. You've got to have that drive from a very young age, that drive to succeed. And in Lanning's case, as you rightly mentioned, her career began at a point when uh, Australian women's cricket was doing well, no doubt. And for her to have been thrown into the deep end with an early initiation into captaincy, I think that probably strengthened her steel, her inner resolve to prove a thing or two to herself. Although it's my understanding of Meg Lanning from what I've followed of her through her career, the little that I've been able to read thanks to her not-so-frequent interviews. And also, thanks to this conversation, this 60-minute-long conversation that I had, I believe there was this 
urge in her to do well. There was this potential she always had. The fact that she was given uh, the the captaincy when Jody Fields got injured, uh, she was elevated to vice captaincy. To be tested at, at the highest level at age 20, 21, having started to play the international game as a teenager, that perhaps played a huge role in strengthening Meg Lanning into the iron rod she is, into the absolute class, world-class player that she is. You have to also understand that she grew up in a family of five, as she's gone on to uh, mention in multiple interviews. So there was probably a bit of sibling rivalry coming to play as well. Her younger sister, Anna Lanning, uh, is also a cricketer, and she's done decently well for herself. One of her older sisters, I remember reading during my research, doesn't quite like cricket, but of the five siblings, uh, the other three siblings of hers have also shown passion towards an interest in sport. So sibling rivalry, and this is coming from somebody that, uh, who has an older sibling, I know does play a part in whether or not you grow up to be a competitive person. So yes, the captaincy, the early initiation, professionalization of the women's game that was happening around the time of her having come into the international setup. And of course, uh, the competition from within the Lanning household, I would assume played a huge role. All of these factors sort of amalgamated into making Meg Lanning the great she already is, although I feel that she's only reached probably 55 or 60 percent of what she can really be. And it's probably another seven to eight years, in another seven to eight years, if she does go on to play that long in international cricket, that we'll actually get to realize what Meg Lanning's real quality is. Make no mistake, this is somebody who's broken several records and in about another five years or so I can see her towering above several male grades as well Australian or otherwise I think one of the interesting things is I mean you said there that she's already a great I mean if she retires now if she does if she pulls a Maya Moore and leaves right now and never plays again although Maya Moore may make a comeback in the basketball but she'd still be a great I mean she's already achieved that but what is interesting is she is quite guarded. And even in your interview, she's obviously opened up a bit more to you, but she wasn't coming across as someone who was happy to open up. She was someone who's willing to have a chat with you and discuss some things. But one thing that she mentioned there, and I've seen her mention before, is that she does want to be a great. Most athletes, I would say, probably in the back of their mind and sometimes in the front of their mind want to be a great, and they work towards that. It's not as obvious to come out and say it. And it's even weirder for her to be saying it now when she already is a great. So in her mind, there are obviously hurdles that she hasn't even got to yet that she's going to continue to try and climb. So it's not like she's like, well, I've already got to the top of the game. I'll just cruise for the next five years. She's going to continue to try and get better and better every time she goes out and plays, isn't she? Yet another hallmark of greatness. I think there is this perception, especially around female athletes, when it comes to them claiming, I want to be great, I want to be uh, one of the best uh, to have played a certain sport. And when you compare such a claim to that made by a male player, it's viewed differently by the public. And that's because of the gender. And in my opinion, when uh, Meg Lanning says she wants to be great, I interpret that statement as I want to be a great athlete. I do not care if people consider me as one of the uh, greatest female athletes or just athletes. In my own head, that greatness should have no gender. 
I really admire that trait in Meg Lanning quite a bit because women do not quite openly state that I'm in it to win it. I don't pay something just to get that participation tag. Mm. I know I'm good. So let me just go out there and kick some arse. Simple as that. And she's that type. Although I'm pretty sure that 11 players in any Australian team picked at any given point in time would have a similar mindset. But Meg Lanning, yes, she doesn't shy away from the fact that she knows she has the potential to achieve greatness that has not been documented in cricketing history previously. And she knows that she has to work hard for that. Even if that means guarding herself from the public eye to a certain extent, I really see no harm in that. As I mentioned uh, at the start, that there's been this public perception around Meg Lanning being this. Uh, and to quote you from one of your uh, pieces, from that very piece, which became one of my sort of focal points in my research, the piece that you did during the 2017 ODI World Cup. And I quote you, Jared, you uh, called her a hard arse mm. because there are two types of captains. You went on to describe or explain that uh, situation who are the sweet, uh, smiling, thinking type. And there is the hard arse wanting to win everything that comes their way specimen as well. She belongs to the latter, as you went on to describe her. And for the longest time, given her reclusiveness, I think that reclusiveness has also played a part in this public perception around her being inert or being absolutely impenetrable when it comes to uh, establishing a connect at a more non-cricketing level. But I think that's completely fine. And I will also uh, take this moment to mention that the seed of this long Cricket Monthly interview with Meg Lanning was something that happened beyond the boundary, both literally and metaphorically. And I'll explain how. During the T20 World Cup in Australia, uh, which I uh, happened to cover for ESPN Trick Info, just after the must-win game uh, against New Zealand at the RACA, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, no, it was in Melbourne. How could you get those two confused? Yes. Uh, <laughs> It was in Melbourne Junction Oval. Having just won the game, I remember watching her from the press box and the sight that caught my eye and stayed with me ever since and probably made me even more curious about what lies beyond and beneath this facade that she's created for herself probably to make sure that she remains focused on what her real goals are. And that is to be great, just totally fine. And everybody really should be fine by that as long as she's not harming anybody. I remember walking up to her nephew and niece. And that's probably the happiest Meg Lanning I've ever seen on television, at the stadium. Uh, I did cover a series she was part of in India in 2018. That was the start of Australia women's uh, record-winning streak back in March 2018 in Vadodara. And, of course, the World Cup was uh, the first major tournament that I covered. And that side of Meg just uh, absorbing the warmth that her niece and nephew exuded, it was, it was beautiful. And that, to me, was a trigger to launch a further investigation about what could possibly lie beyond that facade. I was seeing two personalities. One, on the field of play, who, who was determined to make sure that 
at a home world cup australia get over the line against one of their most uh, formidable opponents their trans tasman rivals new zealand ellis ferry had just picked up the hamstring injury and their tournament had gone through all sorts of uh, hurdles and obstacles every obstacle possibly imaginable and then for her to come and embrace her niece and nephew and spend time with them by the boundary rope i think that was testament to the fact that there are two personalities either side of the boundary rope and it's well within her right to make the decision that there is a certain personality she wants to portray on the field of play and even at press conferences uh, and there's the other personality that she would want to guard as fervently as she can and keep it as private as she wants to she's totally entitled to that well i mean that's not exactly a rare thing within australian cricket as well you know the white line fever is very much taught in australian sport not just australian cricket my favorite meg lanning memory is from the 2017 world cup when she was at the toss <laughs> Again, I was late to that game. I had to drive down from another place, got there just at the toss when everything was cracking off, when she forced the ICC to change the decision at the toss after saying, was it Deandra? No, it was Taylor that was captain. Stefani Taylor. Yeah, it was Stefani Taylor, wasn't it? Who said she misspoke and Meg Lanning was having none of it. And there's this great moment where it just looks like Meg Lanning is going to fight anyone to make sure that she gets the decision. So, I mean, she clearly has those two different sides to her. What she said to you was, is that she's actually starting to change um, and, and started to grow up. And it's a really interesting thing that you talk about in the piece. She is one of those uber successful athletes who probably never really had to deal with much failure in her life. She didn't have to deal with many setbacks. She came into an already great team, made it greater by just by playing herself, but also then by her leadership. But when she did start to get injuries and when they lost that 2017 World Cup, and it sounds like she went into maybe not a funk, but she went into a bit of a, a mind space where she started to reevaluate how she dealt with her teammates a little bit and changed who she was slightly. Yes. The genesis of that change, uh, as she did agree to, this is this one assessment that I had made and she did agree that probably I was correct to a certain degree. And it has been uh, mentioned by several other commentators, I must admit. just after clinching the uh, 2018 T20 World Cup the smile that she had on her face that was probably the biggest grin she's ever sported on a cricketing field and that marked the beginning of uh, a rejuvenated sense of hunger probably and her wanting to course correct again this is my assessment of Meg Lanning and what I've seen Meg Lanning become since that 2018 T20 World Cup victory, probably she wanted to make amends for a few things that she could have done better prior to that 2017 World Cup semi-final exit against India. And that layoff certainly did arm her with perspective, which is important in every athlete's life. They live, most athletes, as famously mentioned by Rahul Dravid, admit that they live in a fishbowl. For them to get that perspective of what it feels like to step out of the system that regular routine that they follow 24/7 365 days a year and to get the feeling of being more in touch with the outside world i think that did her a world of good personally and obviously you've seen she's still very guarded at press conferences just not to say that you know she's this happy chatty 
person she's become or she's transformed into all of a sudden but she's certainly more willing to be less guarded if i may put it that way she's guarded still yes but probably more willing to lift the lid from herself only slightly yeah i mean she's never going to be like megan shoot making jokes and stuff on twitter is she she's or not lisa healy for that matter yeah lisa healy is another perfect one i mean even i don't know um anna lanning very well other than twitter but she seems a lot more loose. That's not who Meg Lanning's going to be. She's not going to flip the switch. It's going to have a George Foreman moment where she goes from being really, really full-on and intense and then suddenly be like a stand-up comedian. Meg Lanning's not going to have that moment. She's always going to be guarded, but she just seems to be now that she understands her teammates a little bit better. She perhaps is enjoying it a little bit better. I go back to Michael Jordan because... I always relate Ricky Ponting and Michael Jordan in the way that they went about it. And they didn't always understand that other players weren't like them. And watching Meg Lanning, there's a really interesting clip that I remember seeing years ago. Cricket Australia released it. They filmed her batting and training. They mic'd her up. And she's talking to, I want to say Nicole Bolton, but I can't remember who the other batter is. It's a training exercise. A center wicket practice session? Yeah, you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah. And she's so intense. Bolton makes a mistake. I think Midon's up or something. And Bolton doesn't try and clear Midon with a ball. And she just drills her about it. And if you watch The Last Dance and watch Michael Jordan, you'll know exactly the correlation I'm making between those two things. What Lanning does in that moment is exactly what Michael Jordan does because she doesn't realize that Nicole Bolton is not her and is not that good and doesn't make every decision right. I get the feeling now she would understand that more than she did when she was, I think she must have been about 23, 24, 25 at that point. That's what mid-20s does to you, right? In any <laughs> case, it does to any human being. I've just crossed my mid-20s, so I realize how turbulent my early 20s were. So I'm pretty sure Meg being uh, just a year older to me and she being a millennial herself, although she's been this antithesis of a millennial uh, and credit <laughs> to her for being so, really. Because there are so many distractions out there, and especially for a public figure as successful as her. Credit to her for you know having those blinkers on since 2010, the year of her international debut. And that's a huge positive, huge um, strength in any millennial at these times. Because you have a thousand reasons to be distracted from what you originally set out to do. So credit to her for that. I suppose what I'm saying is, through the being out of the game, and through her learning, she's probably becoming a better leader because she's coming more empathetic. She's understanding that other players are not Meg Lanning. And I know that sounds weird, but you see that in top-level athletes sometimes. You know, when KP had a go at um, uh, James Taylor, it's like James Taylor was a phenomenal cricketer, but KP couldn't see that he wasn't KP. And I've heard KP talk about cricketers before, and I was commentating with KP during the South Africa series, and he's like, why isn't he just hitting that for six? It's like, because he's not Kevin Peterson. That's why he's not here for six. He's got his own skills. I feel that at 28 and the last couple of years, she's mellowed a little bit as a person. She now understands how to get the most out of herself, but also perhaps get the most out of everyone else around her. And she maybe won't be demanding the way that some superstars are. And she'll work out how to make other players rise up rather than expecting them to be Meg Lanning. I'm not sure that is a question, but I think she's changed. And I, I think your article very much sums that up. Certainly. So the factors, if I may sort of enlist them, the journey from afterwards, from passing the mid-20s mark, that's certainly a factor. And also the defeats that they have faced at the hands of India, T20 World Cup final loss uh, in Kolkata, plus the fact that uh, 
the stakes are even more higher right now. And probably she realizes that the Gulf, to a certain extent, though not majorly, is starting to lessen when it comes to causing upsets. Mm. You have a certain Shafali Verma coming up from somewhere. Pooja Vastrakar's Jamima Roderick, Sophie Eccleston's a bowler, she pointed out as being the best spinner going around mm. in international cricket at the moment. So there are these talented youngsters who are as fearless as Meg Lanning is. And I remember from that tour of India in 2018, which was also Jamima Roderick's first international series at home, she went on to describe Roderick's as being fearless. To me, the template of fearlessness in women's cricket has was set by a certain Karen Walton and a certain Meg Lanning took it to a different level altogether. And of course, uh, alongside several other Australians, uh, you can never identify an Ellis Perry as being fearless as much as you would with regards to Meg Lanning. Mm. So these are the factors and a key moment, a turning point for Australian cricket, which I feel may have had an impact, although there's not been much talk about it, is uh, the men's ball tampering scandal. Remember that this was a team, the Australian women's team, accomplished that India tour at a time which coincided uh, with uh, the aftermath of the ball tampering scandal being at its peak. So she knows that she has a responsibility towards Australian cricket beyond just the interests of women's cricket specifically. Here was a team who did well at a time when all sorts of things were being said about the Australian men's team and their success helped probably to a certain extent to divert the discourse around Australian cricket a bit at the time. And she knows that with the pay level being uh, made to match the men's. There's also the uh, financial stakes that have gone up significantly. And with social media, although, as you rightly mentioned, she'll probably never be an Alisa Healy or Megan Shute, but she does realize and accept and acknowledge, and she's mentioned this in a number of podcasts uh, she featured in recently during the pandemic-induced break, that she does realize that it's important for cricketers, women's cricketers especially, to have a social media presence because fans want to reach out to you, fans want to hear from you. And pivotal to the growth of the women's game, that there is a semblance of connect between fans and these emerging icons in women's sport, women's cricket. So much as she would want to be that reclusive Meg Lanning that she inherently is by nature, because most people, several people are. I am a journalist. My job is to talk to people and draw things out of people. But I'm an immensely reclusive and guarded person myself. I'm not that jolly, happy, chatty, uh, smiling person all the time. So with regards to Meg, I think it's quite similar in that she realizes that she will have to fulfill a few social media commitments and mm. if reluctantly post that occasional picture on Instagram, she's probably deactivated or entirely deleted her Twitter account. She was there on Twitter once upon a long time ago, but she prefers Instagram as a platform. She mentioned in an Insta live with former Australia captain Lisa Stalikar. So much as she would want to hold on to that guarded personality of hers, she does realize that not just as the Australia captain or as one of the world's best batters, 
as an icon in Australian sport, in women's sport, in women's cricket. She has a responsibility and she wants to make sure that through the rest of her career, the discourse around her being that impenetrable persona changes slightly for the sake of women's cricket for the major part. Mm. The whole ball tampering thing is quite interesting. I think the women's cricket, they were getting very arrogant as a team and rightfully because they win everything i think they were getting very arrogant with the team and starting to go down the sort of holes that the men's team were going down before they lost the um world cup in 2017 and then obviously struggled again later on as well a little bit otherwise i think they might have even gotten i'm not saying they would have tampered but they were certainly getting to a point where i was seeing all the same sort of signs i had seen with australian cricket in men's game in the 90s coming through uh, on her batting we haven't talked too much about her batting i think she's the best women's batter i've ever seen i thought claire taylor was a genius but probably slightly limited obviously charlotte edwards and i saw a little bit of belinda clark although i was quite young and back in those days it was harder to see stuff uh, you talked about karen rolton and you know there's been some very very good players and mathali raj is I still think that most technically correct player I've seen, but not as good at making runs. Is Lani the best batter you've seen? In my opinion, certainly yes. But that's it. Only your opinion matters. My opinion matters. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes, guys, Meg Lanning has done this uh, 60 minute interview with me. Bori, the TCM piece, this is the best moment for me to plug the interview at this point in the podcast. Don't worry. It's going to be in the show notes. It's fine. People are going to find your article. And we have lots of other content from that interview coming up. Uh, it's not just the TCM uh, piece <laughs> that went up. We have fun questions uh, that will be rolling out during the WBBL. So stay tuned. Right. So getting back to your question, Jared. In my opinion, certainly, yes. Starting with the correctness of her technique, her hunger to score. What I personally was really stoked about having drawn from her, or thanks to Meg, it's totally her generosity to let me in her uh, world, within the world of cricket and slightly beyond it, that the interview became what it became. But uh, what I was most stoked about was the mention of her personal batting coach, Steve Maddox. She said that it was Maddox who, from a very young age, drilled into her that you're not out there wielding a bat to just look good, to look graceful. You've got to score runs. That's your job. So it doesn't matter how you do it, as long as you make sure that you perform your job to the best of your ability and your job is primarily to score runs. Now, my uh, experience of playing cricket has been limited to only the district level uh, here in uh, Bengal. But I remember when I used to train under my coaches, and this has been the prevalent template in most women's academies in India for sure. I can vouch for that. Most coaches early on when training young girls, young kids, want to make sure that their wars, their disciples look good. They look graceful. The correctness of the look of their shots is given far more uh, importance than them actually being able to maneuver the ball, find the gaps, mm. play lofted strokes, TL, DR in short. Their ability to score is secondary to looking good. That I think wasn't the case with Steve Maddox training Meg Lanning. And by her own admission, that competitiveness that he drilled into her early on when training her starting from War 5, that probably uh, is something that connects that 
streak, that trait in Ricky Ponting wanting to hit mm. the ball from the get-go. So you are able to connect the dots. There was this idol that she had, uh, somebody whom she could base Maddox's teachings on. Mm. Uh, that's my assessment of it. You always want to project your thoughts onto somebody when it comes to uh, idolizing someone. So for her, when having just started our training under, uh, under this one coach, he was making sure that as a student, she's given the right instructions when it comes to maximizing scoring opportunities. And there was this one Australian batter who, who was a prolific scorer, prolific run getter in Ricky Ponting. So a number of boxes ticked. And for her to have mentioned Maddox is also key to my understanding in was also key to my understanding of the role Matthew Mott has played in her evolution and the evolution of the Australian team as well. Because uh, in my opinion, a certain shot that I saw in the series, in the ODI series opener against New Zealand, there was this uh, pull that she played in the first ODI. I do not quite remember who the bowler was, but it was obviously a pacer. And it was like a carbon copy uh, shot of Ricky Pontings. So to get back to those uh, early days of idolizing a legend of the game and being conditioned to scoring in as prolific a manner as possible, these are factors which, to my mind, make Meg Lanning the current best. And to my mind, she's also been the best that I have seen from the little that I've watched cricket and thanks to my working as a cricket journalist through the past five years or so, I'm not sure uh, you've seen anybody as technically correct as her. Of course, there's been the rise and rise of Alisa Healy. She's, her game is completely different to Lanning's. There's intent, of course. There's also the hitting the ball from the word go. But it's certainly different to Lanning in that Lanning knows a thing or two about rotating the strike, mm. which probably was something that was missing or wasn't quite on show since her return to international cricket uh, in the immediate aftermath of the return to uh, international cricket from the injury layoff. And there was a talk around um, until she struck that century, the 15th test in the 2019 Ashes, and the, the, that century against. England, I think there was this talk around whether Meg Lanning has lost her touch. A talk on social media, there was uh, there were a number of uh, write-ups uh, that came out about her having possibly uh, been struggling to find the, the mojo, the Meg Lanning mojo. The, that 15, she struck in the one of Ashes test and uh, the century, which is probably one of her top five knocks for sure, in my opinion. It certainly strengthened uh, or rather vindicated her uh, status as the world's best female batter. No, definitely. I should tell you as well, as a Melbourneian, the whole Maddox thing is really interesting because they're a very famous Melbourneian cricket family. I think they still run a cricket store. They used to um, send out a brochure at the start of every year. So me and all my friends would get the Maddox brochure that would come out would be very excited obviously len maddox played test cricket for australia so it was very cool to see that they're still so involved with the next legend but i I think when it comes down to it i think it goes back to the original thing that we were talking about that she was looking at ricky ponting 
She came into a winning environment. She came into a professional environment. And she also, her batting was so much more about making runs than it was being technically correct. She kind of is the next evolution. You could see why she is the greatest batter that certainly you or I have seen. She is right on the cutting edge of where women's cricket is. And the scary thing is that we say all this as her team's just won 21 straight games. And they now basically have a professional setup that nowhere else in women's cricket is even close to. I mean, it could get better for her. It could get worse for everyone else. Absolutely. And that she sat out the final ODI against New Zealand and yet they went on to put up that mammoth total and win by Adar, I mean, win by 232 odd runs uh, does lend testimony to the might of this Australian lineup. They are all batters. Some of them are disguised as uh, bowlers. And <laughs> they possibly bat as long as uh, you would expect in an ideal lineup. What to me has been crucial aspect to Meg's evolution, not just as a batter, but as a captain, is how many youngsters have come into the Australian uh, primary Australian squads and the setup, of course, uh, the way Ashley Gardner or Talia McGrath and even Annabelle Sutherland, whom she's spoken of highly in the interview and uh, also mentioned in a couple of pieces by cricket.com.au. To her credit, as with any other captain, the influx of youngsters into the side will certainly be one of the talking points in her legacy, whatever shape it takes seven or eight years down the line. And the fact that she and the team management, whatever, uh, whoever the think tank com- comprises, aside from, of course, coach Matthew Mock and uh, Lanning herself and vice-captain Rachel Haynes, the fact that these youngsters are given the freedom, the license to go out there and express the competitiveness, the fearlessness, we talk of uh, when mentioning Meg Lanning's style of play, it's sort of brushed on, it's sort of rubbed off to the less experienced players in the side. And even though they lack in experience, uh, their stroke play wouldn't quite betray the fact that they are only into probably uh, their 25th or 30th uh, international game. Coming back to uh, this culture of fostering fearlessness, I think you also have to give credit to the other leaders in the side, as she's mentioned in the piece, and as has been the talk within the Australian women's setup since Lanning's shoulder injury ruled her out in the last league game of the 2017 ODI World Cup, if I remember correctly, against... Uh, it didn't quite rule her out, but Australia decided to rest her. Yeah, It does indicate their belief, the Australian women's cricket setups, belief in the ability of the players who are not carrying the captain's tag yet. In their own right, they have leadership abilities which they make sure they pass on to uh, whoever comes in uh, from the younger lot. And that cumulative, that collective sense of responsibility is what makes this team so success. And only recently, Matthew Mott, just after Australia completed their 21st ODI win, mentioned that the moment the team realized that Lanning won't be able to lead them in the third and final ODI, Alisa Healy gave this uh, pep talk to the players that 
here's an opportunity for us to accomplish something absolutely brilliant. It's a once in a career opportunity to win, to level a world record, also held by your compatriots. And then, of course, the way Rachel Haynes led the team in Lanning's absence. Probably the only bad decision she made was in playing that sweep that deprived her of that century. She got out on 96, unfortunately. But competitiveness-wise, it's a two-way traffic, in my opinion. Not only has Lanning benefited from being in the system, starting out from that early initiation into captaincy, uh, the likes of Belinda Clark having inspired her so much. She did go on to mention um, uh, Alex Blackwell mm. and Shelley Nitschke in the interview. So all of these players have played a vital role in fostering that fearlessness and this current team with the core made up of Lanning, Healy, Perry, Haynes, Jonathan, yet another key member who often misses out on grabbing headlines no matter how good she performs much like Haynes, but all of them have collectively made sure that Lanning's own competitiveness fostered by the likes of Maddox or even uh, her siblings, the family setup she grew up in, that helps Lanning grow as much as helps the Australian women's cricket setup, the national team, go from strength to strength. So it's been a symbiotic relationship, this whole um, idea of fearlessness, which has not only benefited Lanning personally, but also the team she's led for all these years. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jared. It was uh, an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guest in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets.